well, your toe bone connected to you. Foot bone, your foot bone connected to you. Heel bone, your heel bone connected to you. Ankle bone, your ankle bone connected to you. Leg bone, your leg bone. Hello and welcome to the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Erse. Tips for pain-free aging. Dr. John Erse is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon with over 35 years experience in the Dayton, Ohio area. He is also a clinical fellowship trained surgeon in total joint replacement from Harvard. Today's topic is torn ACL, now what? Let's listen in. Hey there everybody. Welcome to the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Erse. It's a very special day. It's a Christmas uh, event we're having here, and uh, we have Dr. John Erse. Dr. John Erse, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Terry, I'm a uh, board-certified orthopedic surgeon in Dayton, Ohio. Been in practice 35 years. Senior member of a large orthopedic group that takes care of lots of problems involving the bones and joints. And I understand we have a special guest. That's Dr. Jackson. Tell, Dr. Jackson, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, Terry, I'm Dr. Tiba Jackson. I'm a sports medicine specialist. And basically what that means, uh, a year after my orthopedic training, I spent an additional year in sports medicine, specializing in athlete, athletic care and uh, getting athletes back, on a, in the, back in the game. All right. Well, great. Well, Dr. Erst, what's on the docket for today? What are we talking about? Today's topic is torn ACL. Now what? So we're going to start with telling you what an ACL is. That's your anterior cruciate ligament. That's a pretty important ligament in the middle of our knee. And it's one of those things where everybody says, oh, my, when they, their kid or their fantasy football player gets one of those injuries. The ACL goes much like a tomato steak up a plant right up the middle of your knee, and it holds the knee from wobbling mostly forward. There is a thing called a posterior cruciate that helps prevent the knee from going backwards. But when you go down a set of steps carrying your baby, you could be a housewife. You don't have to be carrying a football on a field. If you don't have an ACL, your knee can wobble, it'll buckle, and sometimes not support you. And you don't want to be dropping, you know, little Cindy down the steps. So injuries to the ligament are very important to recognize and very important to tailor to the needs of the person who has them. All right, so Dr. Jackson, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I, I know you spe specialize in ACL tear, so tell us a little bit about the ACL. The ACL, as Dr. Erse mentioned before, is the anterior cruciate ligament. And that with the PCL form the cruciate ligament. Cruciate means cross. They actually cross each other. Um, being the anterior cruciate ligament, its goal and role is to prevent anterior translation of the tibia relative to the femur. It also has a role in rotational stability. So what do we need our ACL for? It helps us stabilize our movement as we go straight and change direction. So if we were to run in a straight line and then turn left or right and pivot, um, the ACL helps stabilize the leg so it goes in the same direction. If we don't have an ACL, what happens is the tibia and femur rotate in different directions and you end up falling. That's why it's very difficult to return to any sort of sporting activity if you don't have an ACL. Well, that leads me to a question right away, is that do other structures in the knee then become more likely to be injured without that stability of the ACL? And what should we be looking for in addition to an ACL problem if that happens? 
if you um, don't uh, have your ACL reconstructed and you decide you want to treat this non-operatively, what happens, the meniscus actually bears the brunt of the stability of the knee. They are the secondary stabilizers of the knee. So without that ACL, increased force is put across the medial and lateral meniscus, specifically the medial meniscus, which takes the majority of that force, and also the articular cartilage. So what they found out over time, if you don't have an ACL reconstruction, um, it's more likely that you'll have a meniscal tear, and meniscal tears uh, will lead to premature arthritis. And I think what you were saying also means that those articular or little cartilage surfaces on the end of the bones that form the knee joint can actually bang against each other without having a good stable knee. And therefore, you've got what are like bone bruises, except they're cartilage bruises. And we know that cartilage, when it gets injured, is what is supposed to protect the knee from getting arthritis, correct? Exactly, Dr. Ertz. And that's why almost all uh, teenagers and, and youth and and people who are young, we, we always recommend an ACL reconstruction. And that may not be the case for a 55-year-old or 60-year-old, but nearly everyone who's young should have their ACL reconstructed. Well, that's going to lead us into the one-third rule. And I'm going to go back first before we start on that with a little bit of history because that tells us where this started and where it's come. Back in the mid-'70s, Football players who got injured, much like Gale Sayers on the Bears, great running back, tore his ACL. But we did not have a way to fix them properly. So that pretty much ended your career if you had a bad knee. And that was the end of your football or sports career. In the early 80s, these new what are called repair techniques and reconstruction techniques came about. And Dr. Jackson is going to talk a little bit about that in the group of people that need that. But the one-third rule is what a, an orthopedic surgeon like myself will apply to the people we see. We first of all want to find out, is this really the problem? So what things would we ask somebody after an injury that might tell us they tore their ACL or how should they evaluate it or test for that type of injury? Usually uh, ACL injuries, you'll have a level of effusion in the knee. So if you have an effusion, it's about a 70% chance that you have an ACL tear. Also, you will notice that you will have some level of instability. If you walk on uneven surfaces or you change the direction quickly, you'll notice that your leg will give out or you're more likely to fall. Um, so those are a couple factors. And then when you go to a physician or athletic trainer, there's a couple tests that you want to use. There's the uh, anterior jaw test, there's the Lachman, and then there's the pivot shift. Um, once you do those tests, there's a great likelihood if they're positive that you do have an ACL tear and we want to confirm that with an MRI. And that's just a simple radio wave test. There's no dye involved. It's a pretty standard imaging study and it shows all the things in the knee, the meniscus, the other injuries that could have occurred if there's an ACL or even unfortunately a PCL injury, which is takes a little more force. And then if you're the parents up in the stands watching a basketball game that your child's in, um, what are things that would tell you that was a really bad injury on the court? What, what things can you see would be um, 
kind of harbingers of a more serious injury? When I cover uh, sporting events, I, I, I do so from the sideline. And I really let the athletic trainers do the majority of the workup initially. But whenever an athlete is unable to bear weight, that's usually a sign that it's a pretty significant injury. Um, you got to give the athlete time to gather themselves, you know, let the pain get under control. And if they're unable to bear weight, you got to get that MRI sooner than later. Right. And I always tell, uh, ask my patients, could you continue to play afterwards? And if they say, well, you know, I played three more games, but I, my free throw shooting was off. That's probably not an ACL injury. You know, these are serious injuries. The knee sometimes will have a pop that the patient hears or even some of the other players hear the pop. And that tells you it's a little more serious injury. That takes us now to our one third rule. And as an orthopedic surgeon, what I ask people is, just what Dr. Jackson said, are you this teenager or high level athlete that needs that knee to pivot, to turn, to play sporting events or, or some of the activities you'd like to do, skiing or other sports? If you do, you pretty much are in the one third of people that need it fixed and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. But a third of the people really in that age 50 group, if you work in a factory and tear your ACL, you can walk to the refrigerator and get a beer and you really don't need your ACL. And a lot of times we'll just say, as you get older, your joints get a little stiffer and that looseness factor of an ACL tear doesn't become a big problem in everyday life. The middle third is what we call weekend warriors. These are people that wanna play a church softball game once a week, maybe hit the slopes once, put a knee brace on, and they're gonna do physical therapy. They're gonna do some rehabbing of their, particularly their hamstrings, which are the muscles in the back of the thigh. And we're gonna well, get a lot of those people back to mild activities and not the real uh, vigorous cutting activities that sports or more like downhill slalom skiing involved. So Dr. Jackson, what, what are the ways we would um, tell people we can fix your ACL and why can't we just fix what's torn? Don't we just, can't you put a stitch in it? Historically, as we go back to the natural history of ACL repair versus reconstruction, initially they tried to uh, repair the ACL and then it failed miserably. They were never able to regain the stability and it didn't heal very well. Um, from then, uh, they started using xenograft, using bovine uh, collagen to reconstruct the ACL, that would often lead to a huge effusion uh, reaction and, and it basically destroyed the knee. So that, and that, that, that fusion thing is like a big swollen knee, right? A bunch of yeah. fluid in there, right? Okay. And then bovines are cows. So you're starting to use other yeah. animals and sources for this graft material. And like I always tell my patients, these these ACLs are like ropes, and when they rip, they're like two wet mop ends. And think of trying to put a stitch in two mop ends. That's, that's why they don't work, and what's there isn't very good. So you almost have to get a graft of some kind, which is a new or what's called a substitution for what was there. And then where can those come from? Uh, there's a lot of graft choices. Um, there's the uh, patellar tendon, which is the gold standard. Um, there's hamstrings. And that's, uh, that's under your kneecap, right? So Correct. if you feel your kneecap, that little ropey thing below it, we talked about jumper's knee and things in a couple episodes ago, and that kneecap tendon has really got a couple uh, extra strips of tendon we can take out and still 
keep the other tendon strong enough that it doesn't weaken it enough to worry, right? Yeah, we typically take the middle third of the tendon and they've done studies and there's really no real deficits after taking the bone, patellar bone, but there is a incidence of anterior knee pain that we have to be cautious about when we harvest. Well, you know, if you remember our PRP talk, there are some studies that show putting PRP, that platelet-rich plasma, in the place where you take the kneecap tendon and then that cuts down swelling and inflammation and that helps reduce some of the soreness from the from the graft site because sometimes that hurts almost as much as the stuff in the joint where you're fixing the the ACL right? absolutely if there's one thing that's going to hold a BTP back it's going to be the anterior knee pain otherwise than that it, it performs uh, excellent uh, and, it, as and, as I, and it actually is it's stronger than your old ACL isn't it yes it's yes like about 70% stronger yeah and these benchmark studies so what you put in there is pretty darn good and it's not going to wear out in five years right I mean heaven forbid you don't re-injure it usually once you reconstruct an ACL you're, you're going to have it for the rest of your life unless you had a another additional significant injury equal or greater than the primary injury you're going to keep that for life which then protects your meniscus it protects your cartilage surfaces and there really is a, a, a pretty you know kind of an evolving uh, list of studies now that show the long-term effects of having an absent ACL may lead to some more early arthritis than we'd like because of that kind of wobbliness in the knee where the, the kind of the bone ends bang against each other. So you get that additional preventative benefit down the road, especially in younger patients, right? You really, you know, our job is to get people to age 90. So, you know, we don't want them beating up their cartilage in their 20s if they've got an ACL injury. And we've got some a lot better options than Gail Sayers had, right? Correct. And that's why all young people, I just reconstruct their ACL. I, I don't even mess around with non-operative treatment. Now, can you do something from some of the hamstring tendons too? I've heard of those. What is that? What does that work like in your experience? Has, has it been useful? <clears throat> and Hamstring tendons are also a great option for ACL reconstruction. Um, they have noticed that they have a little less stif stiffness than the uh, BTB. Uh, it, the reason is because the bone he healing interface of the BTB actually heals within six weeks and the hamstrings take up two to three months. To but again, I'm going gonna, gonna to throw out the initials for everybody. So BTB is a bone patella bone. So when we put in these little ropey graphs, they need a chunk of bone on each end to, to be you know stabilized in the thigh bone and the shin bone so there's a little anchor or a little interference screw that holds it in the tibia and then it holds it in the femur and then the ropey thing in the middle is that that ligament or that part of the patellar tendon that becomes the new acl so when they talk about um you know anchoring it in the joint those are the different things your doctor may talk to you about versus taking a strip of that ropey thing called the hamstring tendon. And that's your own tissue, right? So those are both of those things use your tissue and that's called an autograft, not the thing you get from Ringo Starr, which would be an autograph. But this is a auto meaning from the person graft that's used for some other reason. And then there's other types called allografts that come from a cadaver or from a something other than you and what are those what are those benefits let's and not forget the quad tendon there's just some emergency uh, autograph of the quad tendon and that's also and really so that's promising. that that's above the kneecap so when you feel your kneecap if you go below it you get the patellar tendon if you go above it the thigh muscles or the quads we talked about those with our kneecap talk um, that quad tendon is actually good tissue too and maybe a little less what's called morbidity or, or yes or graft harvesting 
misery um, than below the kneecap. Has yeah, the quad tendon has the uh, advantages of soft tissue graft of a hamstring, and also the advantages of the thickness of, of, a, of a BTB. So it has the best of both worlds with uh, less of the morbidity. So that's evolving. It'd be interesting to see how the, the quad tendon uh, performs over a long time in comparison to the hamstring and the bone patellar bone. But if I take a graft, say from a cadaver, is it safe? I mean, have they, have they made sure I'm not going to get hepatitis or some other infectious issue? Has this been prepared so it's safe for me if it's going to go in my body? Absolutely. The companies that prepare the cadaver grafts go to extreme lengths to make sure that they're safe for their patients. If they weren't safe, they'd be out of business. Well, how how do they do that? I mean, they do uh, serialization techniques. The old school way was a radiation of the graft, which would kill all the viruses. But one of the problems with uh, graft irradiation, it it decreases the integrity of, of the actual tissue and the mechanical properties. So they don't do that anymore. So now they do sterile washes uh, of this uh, cadaver graph. And it's really good as far as producing um, safe graphs and, and reducing the transmission of, of, of viruses. And the advantage of that then would be is you're not taking a, a chunk of your own tissue where that would hurt while that recovers. And you're just putting a new graft or a tomato steak up the middle of the knee, which then you know, is the main substitute. And these are all substitutions for what used to be the old ACL ligament, right? Yeah. I mean, autographs are kind of like Robin Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. They, they heal the fastest and, you know, they're initially the strongest, but there are some minor deficits that, that happen when you, when you take from another portion of your body. The great thing about cadavers, you know, you don't take from any portion of your body. And you have a lot of options, even more options than autograph. You can use the Achilles. You can use the anterior or posterior tip tendons. You can use the BTB and hamstring. So there's a lot more options when you use cadavers. Well, I have a couple, couple more questions because this is uh, really, uh, I think, something everybody sees or is concerned about. But what about the timing for doing the ACL? Do we need to do it immediately after the injury? Or is it, is it, is it going to work if we wait two weeks or two months or two years? Well, you want to get your ACL reconstructed within, you know, six to eight weeks of initial injury. The reason why you don't want to wait too long, you don't want repeated instability episodes where you re-tear your meniscus, um, you cause more chondral damage and things of that nature. And the longer you mean banging the, the bone ends around, right? Correct. Because the knee's not stable. The longer you are without your ACL, uh, the more likely you're going to have episodes where your knee gives out. And during those episodes where your knee gives out, that's your, your cartilage gets banged. And but you don't want to do it too soon because then you got all that blood in there. And that's one of the reasons the knee swells right away. And that's one question we ask people is like, when you get hurt, did your knee swell right away? If it did within the first six hours of an injury, that's usually a sign there's blood in the knee. And blood in the knee, most of the time, and if they hear a pop with it, boy, that's almost always an ACL. Isn't that right? Agreed. You know, like we said before, it's about a 70% chance when you have a hemarthrosis uh, in the knee and a pop that you're going to have an ACL uh, tear. And so if you work on the knee full of blood and it's stiff, even if you put a new ligament in, you end up with a brand new reconstructed knee that's full of blood and stiff. So we kind of get some therapy going first after the injury to get the knee movement back, get the blood out of there. Then we fix it sooner than later so we don't 
injured the knee. Is that about Correct. a good summary? So you got to be really cautious early on uh, operating on a really stiff knee because it's already inflamed and the surgery is going to add extra inflammation. And if you get arthrofibrosis, I mean, that's a terrible complication of ACL reconstruction. It's usually a loss of, of terminal extension. And that's, you know, if you're an athlete, that's just devastating. Now, we only that. allow one big long word per podcast, and that was it, arthrofibrosis. We used chondromalacia one day. But that just means you have a bunch of scar tissue or cobwebs get in the knee, in a knee that's had already an insult. And then you do a surgery. Some people form scar tissue, and we want to decrease anything that might lead to stiffness or difficulty with movement later. So we want to minimize those risks. Um, and that kind of leads me to my other question is just is every doctor that does orthopedics really qualified to do this type of surgery? In orthopedic training, there's five years uh, of training. Throughout those years, you um, take a we would call it a buffet. You know, you tried a little bit of trauma surgery, joint replacement surgery, shoulder surgery, knee surgery, all these different surgeries. But if you want to be a specialist, you're going to have to spend an additional year uh, just focusing only on that particular specialty. And that's what a fellowship trained uh, physician is. You spend a whole year focusing only on that particular topic. And what I did after my five years of training, I focused only on sports medicine. And as with anything in life, the more you do something, the better you're going to be at it. And if you spend a whole year just doing sports medicine type cases, you're going to be better at it. So it's not that the other surgeons aren't capable of, of doing an ACR reconstruction. They just haven't done as many as a uh, sports medicine fellowship trained physician. And what you want to do is go to someone who's done a lot of them because they're less likely to have a complication or an adverse effect. Now, there are some general orthopedic surgeons that can do a, a solid ACL. Um, but if you're going to hedge your bet, I would go to a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine. Well, you know, that's kind of one of my wrap up questions is what, what should the patient or the parents or the coaches or maybe the, the agents ask um, the doctor about their upcoming surgery? And I think we answered a few of them. One is, you know, do you do a lot of these um, and are you especially trained to do them or is this like, am I going to be the guy you're checking, uh, you know, a, a book on the night before and saying, I'm not sure how to do these. The other thing would be, you know, what is the, um, what is the type of graph we might need? What's the recovery process? When would I be able to get back to light duties or say regular duties after a surgery? What would I expect? So there's two different categories. There's the athlete and there's non-athlete. So we'll, let's talk about the athlete. Um, when we have a discussion about ACL reconstruction, we're always talking about autograph tissue. We don't even mention cadaver tissue unless they specifically request the cadaver tissue. Sometimes there's certain uh, processes in the body, like if you have Ehlers-Danlos, which is a collagen disorder, which your tissues stretch out. They're like uh, loose-jointed people, yes. right? Yeah. Or, or if there's something wrong with your own tissue, um, we will use cadaver in those instances, but almost always it's autograph. And then the discussion is what autograph you want to use. The BTB, we talk about the, the pros and cons of anterior knee pain, the hamstrings, the pros and cons of maybe needing to augment with a cadaver, and then the, also the quad tendon. And then 
basically it's a discussion between the patient, the family, and me, and we make a, a decision on which type of graph we want to use. The normal timeline for ACL recovery, the first six weeks after an ACL reconstruction, we're working on range of motion. We want to make sure we don't get a stiff knee. We want to get full extension and full flexion uh, by six weeks. Um, at that so six that means get the knee straight, get the knee bent. Yeah. And then am I in a brace for any of that um, after this surgery? So if we do a bone tendon bone harvest, which is your, your kneecap, um, to prevent the postoperative complication of a patellar fracture or patellar tendon rupture, we put you in a brace and make you partial weight bearing for those six weeks. We want that patellar tendon to heal um, before we put all the forces of the uh, your body's weight through it. If we do... So you're going to need to, you know, have a, a way that you can use crutches or a walker to get around. Think about your, we talked a little bit about surgery planning and getting your house and the aisleways cleared, getting rid of the throw rugs and the dog leashes so you don't trip. But all those things have to go into some of the planning. Like, uh, like if it's your right leg, you might not be driving for a week or two. Is that right? Correct. So, and, and, and as far as, um, after those six weeks, you start strengthening the quad uh, and the hamstrings after those six weeks. And then hopefully by three months, you're able to run in a straight line, not writing for the cutting just yet, but straight line running under a control setting with your therapist. And then at six months, you're able to start running and cutting. And then at, at that time, there's a decision, okay, when can you return to play? We take a couple of factors when we are making that decision. We like to look at the objective factors of the quadricep uh, muscle width compared to the non-operative side. We start doing uh, the dynamic test of the single leg hop test with crossover and also uh, see how you perform with the writing and cutting. And then there's the last but not least, the psychological aspect of uh, returning back to a sport. Um, sometimes just the fear of re-injury just doesn't allow you to perform at the same level. So we work on all those factors before we uh, return an athlete back to sport. Well, I think that would that would probably lead to my uh, probably my last question, which would be, you've gone through this, you got your ACL fixed, you're finally back. You're, these are actually a little more common in young girls than boys, right? In soccer and some of the sports. And then how would you prevent this from happening to your other knee? Because I think that's one thing I'd be a little worried about if I was the parent or the kid um, or the athlete is like, how do I make sure I don't have to go through this again on my other knee? Because I've got that same anatomy or whatever the we think some of the predisposing factors are, right? Yes, the ACL uh, injury is a lot more common in the female athlete. There's some anatomic differences between males and females. Females ha are more uh, knocked knee or your knees kind of point in towards the center line and they have hormones like estrogen and uh, progesterone, which cause laxity in your tendons and also their notches, which is the center portion of your knee where the ACL kind of drives up is narrow. So there's not a lot of space there. And last but not least, they have uh, not as powerful musculature. So when they jump and land, 
a lot of times their knees point towards the center line, which actually puts a lot of stress on the ACL. So there's ACL uh, injury prevention programs that actually strengthen the muscles in the knee and actually teach proper landing techniques so we can prevent this injury in the other side. Yeah, and your core muscles of the hip. And we talk about the glutes, and the glutes are these things on the outside of your hip bone that really control your ability to do a knee bend on one leg. And that knee, when it buckles in, when you try to do a knee bend on one leg, means you've got some weakness in what's called your core muscles, which are up at the top of your hip bone. So we want to make sure those are strong and those things get well uh, well developed so we don't get another injury. Well, I think we've uh, beat the heck out of this topic. Um, I like the uh, fact that we had a guest lecturer that knows more about it than I do, but uh, and also knows how to fix more of these than I do. But uh, we're happy he came. We appreciate Dr. Uh, Tiba Jackson. He's in Dayton, Ohio with uh, Orthopedic Associates. I'm proud to call him my partner. And uh, we have uh, a website called oadoctors.com if you want to look up Dr. Jackson and check his profile and his training pedigree. And uh, we once again thank Terry at Tri-Level Recording for doing a great podcast for the Bone & Joint Playbook. All right, guys. Thanks very much. It's been a fantastic uh, conversation about ACL. I wish I had you guys here about 15 years ago when my daughter tore hers, uh, but just a little late. Again, this has been the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Hurst. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Bone and Joint Playbook with Dr. John Erse. Tips for pain-free aging. Please join us again for another episode. This has been a production of Doctors Unmasked, produced by Terry O'Brien.